Welcome to MCH Bridges, where we lift up innovative ideas and inspiring stories from people in the maternal and child health field. I'm Ashley Sanchez-Garcia. I'm a behavioral health intern at AMCHIP, and I'm your guest host for today. In 2019, in the summer before my junior year of college, I came across devastating news. Carlos Gregorio Hernandez Vasquez, a 16-year-old migrant from Guatemala, had died in U.S. Border Patrol custody. He died in a station cell in Texas from the flu and other health complications. That summer was emotionally heavy for me. It felt like I was hearing name after name of minors who had passed away in immigration custody. Felipe Gomez Alonso, eight years old. Jacqueline Cao, seven years old. Wilmer Josue Ramirez Vasquez, two and a half years old and so many more. I felt heartbroken and I wanted to know why this was happening, what support was being made available for children during the immigration process, and what I could do to help mitigate the issue. Several years later, I got involved in public health and I am more interested now than ever in the intersections between migrant health, mental health, and maternal and child health. As many of us know, there has been a public health crisis at the U.S.-Mexico border for decades now, and it has been escalating in recent years. At the beginning of last August, the Pew Research Center reported that monthly migrant encounters at the border were at an all-time high, with 200,000 apprehensions in July of 2021. That is the highest monthly total in two decades. As of May 2022, there were almost 240,000 encounters at the border, which tells us that we should expect numbers to continue increasing. Unaccompanied immigrant children, also called UICs for short, are those under 18 who migrate to the United States alone. They do not have a parent or legal guardian in the U.S. or anyone who can provide care and physical custody upon their arrival. In 2020, there were only 33,000 UIC encountered at the border. Last year, UIC encounters at the border increased to 147,000. So what does all of this mean? More children and families are struggling with the impacts of various social, political, and economic forces within their home countries. It also means that we have a growing population of children who are forced to navigate the immigration system and then our public health system completely alone. Most UICs are Central American with roughly two thirds of apprehended unaccompanied children coming from the Northern Triangle countries. Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador. There are lots of factors that contribute to the decision to arrive in the U.S. alone as a child, including poverty, gang violence, homicides, and the worsening effects of global climate change, to name a few. You might be wondering how the experience of UICs and public health intersect. UICs are known to be particularly vulnerable to developing mental health disorders, 
such as post-traumatic stress disorder, anxiety, and depression due to the multiple traumatic experiences that they may have lived through. We look at it as sort of a triple trauma paradigm that they would have experienced trauma before migration, so in their home countries, during their migration journey, or um, once they arrive or are apprehended into U.S. custody after their release. That was Ann Kelsey, a disability rights policy analyst at the Young Center for Immigrant Children's Rights from New York. She was describing the triple trauma paradigm, which is a useful framework for understanding how trauma works within refugee and migrant populations. As we know, experiences of trauma and particularly multiple experiences over time and complex trauma can have uh, lifelong effects on the health and well-being of children. It's important to note that it is impossible to generalize how experiences of trauma manifest within individuals. However, studies do show that children who experience adversity and trauma are much more prone to negative physical and mental health outcomes. Encountering the U.S. immigration system in itself uh, poses significant mental health challenges for immigrant children. And what I mean by that is that the immigration system uh, in the United States wasn't developed, nor was it structured for children to interact with it in a child-friendly way. So with that, it comes with challenges, right? Being separated from their families, from adults who they feel safe around, can sometimes add to that challenge and increase their mental health needs for those reasons. That was Jose Rosales, a deputy program director within the Child Advocate Program at the Young Center. He's from Los Angeles, California. Children also face a lack of language, inclusive and culturally competent resources, including mental health and and other services that can be supportive in their journey. As Jose clearly illustrates, there are many gaps in the system for UICs, and these gaps alienate children from networks of support and care. For the most part, a UIC's first experience of the U.S. immigration system is being put in custody within a border patrol facility upon arriving at the border. The average stay in custody is around 30 days, but the children that we work with, because of their vulnerabilities, because you know they might not have a viable sponsor or family in the community for any number of reasons, do often spend much longer in custody so it can be months and years, which is sort of a a compounding trauma, right? The detention fatigue sets in, the uncertainty, the stress of of those longer stays in custody. The longer they stay, of course, the more that they would uh, be in need of services when they go into the community. So access is not always the only thing, but once they get access is being able to get the services that they need that's tailored to them. Unsurprisingly, being placed in detention is linked to poor mental health outcomes. We know that children are safest, are healthiest, are most successful when they're with family members and caregivers rather than in custody. And so we really prioritize getting children released as soon as possible to families, to sponsors with services in the community. Outside of detention centers, many UICs have to juggle navigating the immigration system while also dealing with acclimating to a new life in a new country. 
I'd like for everyone listening to imagine being stressed due to a very long to-do list, but all your deadlines are within a really tight time frame, and the tasks that you have to accomplish are completely different. Maybe you have a deadline for a big project at work, but you also need to go to a doctor's appointment and you also have an exam to study for. Jose explains this phenomenon and the impacts that it has on UICs. Children find themselves isolated in each system. And what I mean by that is that they have to navigate and maneuver through the education system, behavioral health system, even the family community, in addition to the immigration system, right? All these systems don't really communicate with each other, talk to each other. It, it really silos the, the child in its experience. And I like to use a, the example of like when a child is, has finals in school, but then they also have like an, uh, an asylum interview that same week. The challenge there is that the child is having to think about their future in the U.S. because at the asylum interview, you're pretty much, uh, the government is deciding your future. And then at school, you're, you're like worried about wanting to ace that test, right? But also understanding that there's not that many language support systems that can get you there too. That's a good example of like what immigrant children have to experience and the life that they have to kind of live until there's some certainty for them through their immigration case. A lot of UICs are in a sort of limbo while their immigration hearings proceed. As Jose said, there is little to no communication within the systems that UICs will regularly encounter in their lives, creating even more isolation and uncertainty. This has a big impact on children's mental health. Most of us listening can only imagine the extreme levels of stress that this kind of situation would bring. Our interest in understanding the complex systems that UICs must navigate led us to the Young Center, an outstanding organization involved with supporting the needs of immigrant youth across the United States. The Young Center is a, a human rights organization that is dedicated to protecting the rights of unaccompanied children, and not only rights, but rights, safety, best interest, well-being. The Young Center isn't appointed to all children in custody. We're only appointed to the most vulnerable so, for example, children who have disabilities or mental health concerns, children who are um, pregnant or parenting, young children, children who are possibly victims of trafficking or who have otherwise experienced violence or are at high risk. That really makes our work and our trauma-informed and our best interest lens all the more important just because of the unique vulnerabilities of other kids that we serve. Jose also told me that the Young Center is the only nonprofit in the country that trains and provides independent child advocates for immigrant children in government detention. Our volunteers who we train before interacting with children work alongside um, Young Center attorneys and social workers to make recommendations on all levels to decision makers who are making these decisions for the children while they're in government or custody. And these business interest recommendations really look at what is in the child's best interest as it relates to their case. So it's very independent and it's very centered to the child. Uh, because one thing that we we push for and we advocate for is to look at the child in a holistic way and not just focus on one thing in their life. 
The Young Center makes a commitment to work for the best interest of those that they serve. Jose and Anne expanded on what the best interest paradigm looks like in practice when working with UICs. When a child is having to make a decision, there's someone that wants to sponsor them up. And what I mean by that is someone that has said, I'm willing to take them in and care for them. For us, the way that we would approach it as in the best interest is we would speak with all stakeholders, speak with the child, and also speak with the adult. Kind of get a sense of like what that would look like and how would the child's needs be met at release. In doing that, we look at the child's wishes and we look at the child's safety. So those are like two guiding needs that, that we would look at. But then we also look at development, liberty, and access to, to their identity and being able to kind of access their identity. So encompassing all those things, we, we make sure that if if it's in the child's best interest to go to this adult, especially, let's say, for example, if there's a child that has been in, in government custody for an extended amount of time, we well, want to make sure that, the one, the adult is, is in a good position to care for the child, but then, two, the child feels comfortable and safe enough to be able to go to this adult that's willing to, to care for them. The idea there is to make sure that, that everything is taken into account and we're seeing the child as a, in a holistic way. The government system can sometimes be a little paternalistic about release decisions and what they think is best for the child and can sometimes acting from, you know, what they think is, is a good spot, put really high bars to services that need to be in place in the community before the child is released or sort of hoops a sponsor might need to jump through. And so, you know, what one thing I think our child advocates are great at is identifying, you know, the child, of course, the child's wishes and safety, but how really the best interest is in the community with services and supports in the community. And our child advocates will really go the extra mile to get those in place to help for release. I really want to highlight this idea of giving autonomy to those that we serve in our respective careers. A lot of times as professionals, we run the risk of entering spaces and assuming that we know the best ways to serve those we work with. This is especially true for this population because they are minors, but I completely agree with the Young Center's focus on addressing the specific best interests and needs of every child. Once I learned how the Young Center is working to promote equity for migrant children, I wanted to know how we as maternal and child health professionals can support the mental health needs of UICs. There are a lot of ways that they can support this work and get involved. And one great one is listening to this podcast, right? Because now they'll know more about unaccompanied children, um, and that's a huge step. Another one is, is we encourage uh, listeners to reach out to the Young Center. We work with children in custody and children who are released all over the country. And it's hard for us to know kind of what's available in each city, state, you know, area. And so we would love to know what you guys are working on. We'd love to work together to strengthen supports and services for unaccompanied kids and kind of, you know, make sure that we're all working together. Um, so for example, you know, you might be piloting a really exciting child mental health program and we would love to know about that. And we'd love to know that it's available to our kids and to kids regardless of documentation status. So one is definitely, you know, reach out to us. In New Mexico, Las Cumbres' project, Santuario del Corazón, 
is providing trauma-informed care to UICs who relocated to northern New Mexico. Their goal is to meet the critical human rights and social and emotional needs of migrant children who have experienced traumatic experiences such as separation from a caregiver, family separation at the border, and or deportation. They had received funding from SAMHSA, also known as the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, for this unique project. And it is just one example of a program like the one that Anne is describing. Another way is to support their federal, state, local initiatives that support increased access to Medicaid. That's a big one, as well as um, to go back to something that Jose said earlier, things that support cultural competency and language access are really huge. So on the federal level, that could look like supporting the Lift the Bar Act or the HEAL Act. I also have my eye on Biden's national mental health strategy and some funding and legislation that might come out of that and how we can use that to support undocumented kids. California has a few state initiatives that are of note here. Medi-Cal, California's Medicaid program, provides coverage to all children and young adults who meet income eligibility requirements, regardless of their immigration status. The California Department of Social Services has a number of social support service programs for unaccompanied minors and other vulnerable immigrant and refugee children, and has just opened the Office of Immigrant Youth, which funds school districts and county offices of education to support newcomers and provide youth mentoring services, among other initiatives. And then lastly, on the local level, to support school peer-based, community-based programs. Those are really proven interventions that will support kids. One such local-level intervention in Arizona is the Mariposa Community Health Center. Mariposa has integrated behavioral health care with regular medical care. The health center's licensed professional counselors are members of the medical staff, and they work hand-in-hand with the physicians to assure that patients, families, and children receive the help they need, both physically and emotionally. Another way you can take action to support our work is volunteering as a child advocate through the Young Center. So, well, yes, join us, join us all. It takes a village, right? It takes it takes all of us to, to welcome and support and advocate for um, unaccompanied kids. We will look forward to any support from your listeners. I had reached out to AMCHIP members in border states, and they shared a lot of great ideas for opportunities to support this population. Maternal and child health professionals can ensure coordinated messaging for families, workplaces, schools, social services, and communities to increase access to resources that support immigrant health, partner with community organizations to increase mental health literacy among immigrant families, and promote awareness of border health initiatives and establish cooperative agreements with partners in border communities to improve immigrant family health and well-being. Before we wrapped up, I asked what drives Jose and Anne to do this work. Well, what drives me, I think, is being able to be a partner to children and young people, especially when they're maneuvering through so many systems, specifically the immigration system. Like, like I mentioned earlier, autonomy and agency is not always guaranteed. So when, when I could partner up with, with the children and the clients that we work with and kind of give them that sense of autonomy and agency, 
kind of gives me hope for their future here in the U.S. because then, then you're setting up a model on how they can interact with other adults and other professionals who, who may be interested in supporting them and ha- helping them maneuver through, through life in the United States. And for me, so I'm actually relatively new to the Young Center. I just joined um, last fall and I come from the disability and health rights world. So this was an opportunity really identified by the Young Center itself to bring some of the best practices, the perspective and the, the experience of disability rights advocates, health rights advocates to the world of immigration and particularly for the uh, um, unaccompanied children that we serve. Um, and, and what I mean by that is, is kind of some of the things that we talked about before, but a, a real focus on community-based services, wraparound services in the home, deinstitutionalization, and understanding that separation and isolation from, from family and from communities is in itself harmful. And so that a system that really works in the best interest of children is one that supports them in a family or a home-based setting as quickly as possible with sports and services they need. I am so grateful to Jose and Anne for sharing their experiences with us on this episode. As a daughter of Central American migrants, this work is very near to my heart, and the work that the Young Center does has been really inspiring for me in such a politically heavy period. Exploring the experiences of UICs has highlighted for me the importance of community building and programs that will continue to promote the autonomy and health of unaccompanied immigrant children. We must affirm the humanity of children, regardless of their immigration status in this country, by listening to them and their stories and providing equitable and comprehensive physical and mental health support. Creating a solution for those who have to navigate a broken immigration system requires collaboration across social systems and sectors and a reimagining of our public systems. This starts with those most affected by the issue because they are closest to the solution. If we hope to holistically advance child health outcomes, then we must make space for and uplift the experiences of migrant children. joining us on this MCH Bridges. We kindly ask that you take a few minutes to fill out a quick feedback survey and let us know what MCH related topics you're interested in and who you want to hear from on future episodes. A link to the podcast feedback survey as well as a transcript of this episode can be found at www.mchbridges.org. Be sure to follow Amtrip on social media. We're on Twitter and Instagram at DC underscore AMCHP. We hope this episode created some new connections for you. Stay well, and I hope our paths cross on the next MCH Bridges. This project is supported by the Health Resources and Services Administration, or HRSA, of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, or HHS, as part of an award totaling $1,963,039 with 0% financed with non-governmental sources. 
This information or content and conclusions are those of the author and should not be construed as the official position or policy of, nor should any endorsements be inferred by HRSA, HHS, or the U.S. government.